All right, so this morning we're in Matthew chapter 26. We're going through verses 1 through 25. And the title of this morning's message is Extravagant Love or Despicable Betrayal. Extravagant Love or Despicable Betrayal. We'll see both. We'll see the contrast. And a lot of things within this study, um, I pray, would serve to uh, speak to you and continue to build you up as children of God and as followers of Jesus Christ. So let's start out with a word of prayer, and we'll get into this chapter. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this moment, Father, that you've given to your church to come together to sit at your feet and glean from you your wisdom. I pray, Father, that, that whatever it is that's spoken this morning would be to glorify you, to truly continue to edify your church, and Lord, perhaps even to draw someone with your love unto yourself, Lord, that they would also know that joy that we, as your children, have come to know through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the hope of forever being in your glory. And so, Lord, we want to commit this morning into your hands, Father. We ask your anointing, your blessing, your leading, and for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so extravagant love or despicable betrayal. We're moving quickly toward Jesus' betrayal and arrest. It's just a couple days out. Passover is just two days away. And although Jesus was done teaching, healing, and even feeding the multitudes, we've gone through all of that up to this point. He now brings his disciples that are closest to him, even closer, draws them in to this amazing moment of his life. The very moment that he was sent on earth to fulfill and accomplish. Jesus had just explained at length how it was that the people were to know how to discern the times. How to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And to be aware aware of the false teaching of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who had perverted the word of God. He explained and taught and preached. He did all of these things up to this point. Jesus had even challenged the religious leaders and had been challenged by the religious leaders. They were there to make every attempt to entangle him in his own words and find some fault in him by which he could be accused, tried, and sentenced to death. Little did they know that Jesus was indeed sent to die. But not by their will, but by the will of the Father. And it was as an innocent man who would serve as the unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist had had pointed out as he saw Jesus coming toward him. Jesus' time to go to the cross was quickly approaching. He knew it. What we have before us this morning is a picture of two people who responded to Jesus in two very different ways. One demonstrated an extravagant love toward Him. One that withheld nothing. Completely gave herself to her Lord in such a beautiful way. On the other hand, we have a man who responded to Jesus with despicable betrayal. When you consider the love of Jesus and the length to which He was willing to go to accomplish the will of the Father, 
and His love, when you consider His love for you, in how the Bible tells us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God demonstrated His love toward us. When we consider how it is that even in the midst of our faults or issues in life, He says He will never leave us, He will never forsake us. He loves us with an everlasting love. How through Jesus Christ we have forgiveness of sins. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When you consider all of those things, how do you respond now and eternally? Let's first of all take a look at the first few verses here, verses 1 through 5. I find them very interesting because the question that comes to mind is, who's in control? Who's in control? Let's read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The time that Jesus spent teaching, preaching, doing miracles, being challenged and challenging, clarifying the law as we saw, and demonstrating in many ways that He is God, is coming to a close. All of that is now coming to a head, in fact. As He is going to Calvary to fulfill the very will of the Father, the very thing that the Father had sent Him to do. Die on the cross on behalf of the world, that the world may have the ability and opportunity to know salvation through His sacrifice by believing Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Notice the two statements we have before us. Jesus, again, tells His disciples that His time to be delivered up to and be crucified by the religious leaders is just two days away. Just two days away. And we have the chief priests and the elders of the people getting together to figure out how to arrest and kill Jesus. We know that within a short period of time, Jesus had told His disciples that the Son of Man is being condemned to death. In fact, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17-19, through 19, it is written, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This, by the way, was the third time that he had told them that this was indeed what was going to happen. What we have before us, as we know it to be the fourth time that Jesus was telling his disciples as he brought brought, brought them in and told them this very thing. How amazing that the time has come, but it wasn't because the religious leaders made it happen. It was because the Father willed it. For them, they came together, they gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So there's two statements. There's 
the plan of the Father, but there's also the plan of those who were there to accuse him, arrest him, and have him killed. I think it's also amazing, these details. Jesus described exactly how everything would happen. Exactly. It wasn't in generalities. He gave examples, or he gave, he described it in great detail, exactly how everything would happen. Judas Iscariot will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and a kiss, hand him over to the priests and scribes, and they in turn will seek to have Jesus condemned to death by the Roman ruling authority that can have a man put to death by crucifixion. The Jewish people, they could not do that, but the Romans could, the Gentiles. And Jesus said, he will be delivered over into the hands of the Gentiles and be crucified but not before being mocked and flogged. And then Jesus will be crucified. And he spoke these very words. This is exactly what he said would happen. Psalm 31, 13 says, For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. The psalmist wrote this. Psalm 31, 13 Something else that has always amazed me is how a man can plot to take the life of another man. I, I've, I've pondered that. I've, like, How is it that a man can actually scheme, plan, lie in wait, and take the life of another person? I, I just, I, I don't understand that it's beyond my understanding. These religious men felt like their religion and power and authority was threatened by Jesus and they weren't going to have it and they were prepared to do anything to make sure it did not happen. Even falsely accusing Jesus and paying people to say things that weren't true. We have it in scripture. In order to find him guilty of something he was not guilty of doing. To go to any lengths. The religious leaders of the time. They felt threatened that their power, their authority was going to be taken away. They were going to be stripped of it. And yet, all of this was not because of the religious leader's plan and plot and scheme and, you know, to do these things. It was actually the Father's will. It was the Father's will that his son would go to the cross to die on behalf of you. It was not they that were in control, but it was God who was in control the whole time. Do not lose heart, Jesus said, for I have overcome. Even in his death, he was not going to remain in the grave. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin on the cross and death as he arose from the grave. Even in the midst of all of this, the Lord was in control the whole time in order to fulfill his plans to provide the Savior of the world to the world and make a way for all mankind to know redemption and reconciliation toward the Father. The Father was reconciling the world unto himself. I can't help but laugh at what the quote-unquote powerful religious leaders were plotting because they said, 
not during the feast. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Well, the uproar was no doubt on behalf of the enemy. For he knew, after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the grave, that he was completely defeated. Because guess when the crucifixion took place? Yep, during the feast when Jesus said it would happen. Jesus said, in two days, this is what's going to happen. Not could possibly, we'll see, my resters are coming, the people who are coming to get me. No, 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 he said, in two days, this is what's going to happen. So who's in control? No matter what is going on in your life, always know that God's word is what matters. No matter what. Remember his promises. Walk in his promises. Cling to his promises. He is faithful. They will always come about. Cling to God's word and know that God is faithful. He is still in control. No matter what happens in this life, God is always in control. Let's take a look at the extravagant lover of Jesus in verses 6 through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. An extravagant lover of Jesus. Beautiful. Bethany, by the way, is located just east of Jerusalem. Um, Bethany is just east of the Mount of Olives. And so you have Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and you have Jerusalem, just so you know geographically where Bethany is. Jesus was at the house of a specific man, Simon the leper. Simon the leper. Well, a person who was leprous couldn't, um, couldn't entertain, couldn't have guests over. So uh, I have no doubt that this was a man who perhaps had been healed of leprosy. By Jesus himself. We're not told that. But he did go into Simon the leper's house. I I think even this. Is just a beautiful picture of how it is that. As Jesus heals. As Jesus does these very works within the lives of people. That their response should be. Bringing Jesus into the midst. Into the home itself. that he may have a place in the very heart of the one who's been healed. This man, anyone who is leprous, was an outcast because of this disease. But as now, we know, made well and has opened his home to Jesus and his disciples and has this woman come in and anoint Jesus with this oil, this fragrant oil, 
This man has opened up his house. Not only is Jesus welcome, but all his disciples are welcome. And there's this home that's just open to the fellowship of the believers. The woman who anointed Jesus with this very expensive ointment was Mary, the sister of Martha, and the sister of Lazarus. Lazarus was the one who was raised from the dead. Mary and Martha, well, you know the story of Mary and Martha, right? Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him, holding on to every word that's spoken by Jesus. And Martha was busy, right? She was busy. Serving and tending and cleaning and doing everything that needed to be done within the home. Luke 10, 38 and 39 says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary, even at that time, had displayed a devotion to Jesus to Jesus, his, his presence, his teaching, his, his words. She was hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. I've said it before how it is that as I sit with Bible open and I'm reading, I want to hang on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I just am so blessed and so filled and just in awe of how it is that the Lord ministers to me in that moment, how it is that the Spirit gives me understanding of what I have before me. I want to have a deeper love for the very God who forgave me and gave me eternal life through Jesus Christ. I want to have this extravagant love for the Lord, just as Mary had expressed in what she did. Because at this point, she had sat at Jesus' feet and just took in everything that he said. She had the better place. You remember how it was that Jesus said she had the better place. Martha was, was running around. Not that, not that serving isn't good, because it is, but there's a time when you just need to sit at Jesus' feet. That is the better place. And then you can serve with a full heart, with the right heart, with the right perspective, for the right reasons. But at this point, she felt compelled. Compelled to follow through with this act of love toward Jesus. It truly is an extravagant display of love toward Jesus, the lover of her soul. She broke the flask and poured out this very expensive, very fragrant ointment on Jesus' head as he reclined at table. In other words, he was sitting around with the rest of the disciples. He was there with them in Simon the leper's home. Simon's home. And she came in with his flask, broke the top, and began to pour this fragrant oil out on top of his head and just lavish him with love. That's what it was. It was a display of extravagant love. Immediately, immediately came the criticism. 
And this criticism came from the disciples. The disciples themselves against Mary's extravagant act of love. Holding nothing back, withholding nothing, pouring everything out, quite literally and illustratively, of her heart, pouring everything out. These disciples were described as being indignant. It wasn't just, wow, you know, that's kind of like a regrettable or, you know, indifferent kind of like, I don't know what to think of that. It wasn't like, wow, you know, was that, it wasn't questionable. They are described as being indignant. That's a pretty strong reaction to what she did toward Jesus. They were annoyed and angered and even resentful toward her. And the question is, why? Why would you feel that way toward a person who is completely giving herself to the Lord in this way? The disciples did come across as being very practical, saying that this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to those who were in need. It's very practical. You can, you know, in many ways say, well, that'd be a good stewardship of what she had, right? And yet, it was Jesus who defended what she did. Verses 10 through 13 is evidence of that as we read again in verse 10. It says, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here's how Jesus defended what Mary did for him. Number one, Jesus deemed... Their indignation is something that unnecessarily caused Mary distress. You're you're causing this distress upon her, and and it's unnecessary. That indignation that you're expressing toward her is not right. So Jesus was very clear and very direct with the disciples, his disciples. They're still his disciples, by the way. They may have gotten it wrong, but they're still his disciples. Please keep that in mind. Sometimes when we're exhorted, rebuked, It's not that you're not God's children. It's not that we're questioning that or anything like that. It's just a matter of, is that really the right way to respond? Is that behavior becoming of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus Christ? Uh, Perhaps not, or perhaps it is. They are still his disciples. Secondly, Jesus deemed Mary's act as a beautiful thing done to him. Jesus was making it very clear that this is a beautiful thing that she has done. It's not ugly. It's not evil. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. It's, It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Thirdly, Jesus will not always be with them. That's what he communicated to them, but the poor will. Fourthly, Jesus was being prepared for burial. He made that very clear as well. She's pointed on my body to prepare me for burial. And fifthly, Jesus declared that her story would be told to the whole world. What she has done, 
is going to be told to the whole world. And guess what? It's being told to the whole world. Wherever the gospel is read, studied, it's being told to the whole world. Wow. That's a pretty clear defense of what Mary did. Jesus defending it as something that was good, not bad. It was not a waste, but a beautiful act of love. Jesus was not telling the disciples they shouldn't be good stewards of what is entrusted to them or not to take care of the poor, but rather that this specific act was a fitting display of extravagant love for Jesus. And nothing that she has done at this point was a waste. Nothing. It was all good. Have you ever given of yourself to the point to where you're like, you just felt like you were compelled to do something that was above and beyond what you've ever done up to this point for the glory of God, for Jesus, for whatever it was that he was doing. And sometimes it just, it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to do this for him. Have you ever done that? If you feel compelled to do that, just know that it's just your display of extravagant love toward him. It's a proper response, by the way. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And the anointing was appropriate for a king. But Jesus said that he was anointed for the purpose of preparing him for his burial that was very, very soon to come. Even though Jesus was anointed, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of his anointing and all received the benefit of the aroma. Kind of like this picture, this illustration that Jesus' presence in the life of the believer will always emit an amazing aroma of life, joy, and hope that fills a heart and a home, and I pray impacts those who are in their presence as it should. For us as Christians, we should emit this aroma that to the believer is beautiful. For he who is looking toward the Lord, impacts them, encourages them, blesses them. But then in contrast, we need to look at the despicable betrayer of Jesus. Verses 14 through 25, we'll begin with the first few here. Verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. In contrast, we have this gentleman before us, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus Christ. Christ. Judas is the one who willingly went to those who knew, whom he knew were looking to accuse Jesus and bring him to death and offered him up. Judas didn't really care about the price. Uh, the 30 pieces of silver, by the way, it was no great amount of money. It was like about 30 bucks, you could say. It was just a small amount of money. But from that time on, they were lying in wait to, to take Jesus into custody. But 30 pieces of silver, what, what do you have to offer? I'm ready to betray him. I'm ready to hand him over to you. What are you offering? Na- na- name it. I mean, your price is whatever it is that uh, I'll take it. They offered him 30 pieces of silver. 
it's almost like, here, here's a 20, how about that? Done. Just think about the attitude, the perspective, the, the, the mindset, the heart set of Judas. Before you gasp at the amount that Jesus was sold for, how much do you think others have sold Jesus for? In other words, how has Jesus been put off to the side or replaced for much less or for nothing? Just offered up. Because that is exactly what Judas Iscariot did. And sometimes that's what we can do. We can um, replace Jesus and the things of the Lord with such small things. It could be less than a $20 bill. Much less. It's just whatever it is that we desire at the moment. And that's enough. What is it that the world offers? What, what is it that you're offering to me? I will go ahead and set the Lord off to the side. And, and I'll, I'll take that. I'll take whatever it is that you're offering. But then we have the Passover feast that was enjoyed by Jesus and his disciples. In verse 17 it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. You know, you always wonder exactly how it was spoken. But I have no doubt that Jesus, as he responded to Judas and said it with perfect love in his heart. The Jewish day, by the way, begins at sundown and not at midnight like ours does. And tonight at midnight, we will have one second over. It'll be October 1st, right? But for... In the, in the Jewish calendar, the Jewish people start their day at sundown. So for them, October 1st, tomorrow, for us, for them would start at sundown. Thus, the Passover feast that Jesus ate with his disciples would be for us Thursday night, but for him and them Friday. That is Passover. Thus, the Passover feast was had by Jesus and his disciples on the same day as everyone else, just not at the same hour. Same day, just not the same hour. Jesus partook of the Passover feast and was crucified on the same Jewish day. 
In fact, Jesus was literally crucified at the same time as the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. The disciples prepared the Passover, and Jesus came and enjoyed the Passover meal with them. He is indeed the Passover lamb provided by the Father. But it was in the middle of their meal that Jesus said these very alarming words. Can you imagine in the middle of the Passover feast? You're enjoying the feast. You're you're partaking. You're reclined at table. It's supposed to be a very uh, celebratory and very a very festive, pensive time. A very relaxed time. And then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Their response was as expected, and they all wondered and asked if it was they. Jesus' response was that the one who had dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. We've all been kind of dipping our hands you know, into the dish. You know, What he was getting at is that, listen, a, a friend of mine among you is going to betray me. Jesus knew it was giving Judas basically an opportunity to confess and repent as his betrayal was revealed. One of you are going to betray me. One sitting here among, amongst us. Jesus knew and was giving Judas an opportunity to confess and repent as his betrayal was revealed. It's an important for us to learn, an important lesson for us to learn, as sometimes those things that are revealed in our own lives aren't meant for us to harden our hearts more and just stand in pride in that place that we have set ourselves in, but to confess and repent and turn from. That's why. Jesus even went to the point of describing the extent of the betrayer's sin and how truly evil it was and how severe the punishment would be. Even at that, Judas, knowing, asked this question. Is it I, Rabbi? No shame, callous, lacking any feeling whatsoever, no conviction. No conviction at all. The rest, if you notice, the rest of the disciples, I don't know if you caught this or not, but this is how they asked the question. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I, Lord? But how is it that Judas asked? Is it I, Rabbi? Rabbi. Judas uttered these traitorous words in a calculated manner. Let's calculate. You're very aware of your words. We should be very aware of our words, but you're extra careful on how you speak certain things when you are not in line with someone else. Very calculated. Choose your words, if spoken at all. Because you don't want to expose exactly where you are, but remember, he's speaking to Jesus. He knows exactly where Judas's heart is. He was calculated, no doubt. He was right in referring to Jesus as perhaps his teacher or a teacher or even known to be 
the teacher of the people, but not as his Lord. He didn't ask him in that way. He said, I, Lord, no, that didn't come out of his mouth. There are those who see Jesus as a good man, a teacher, or a religious leader, but not as their Lord and Savior, and definitely not as God. It's interesting because he can't be a good man, he can't be a good teacher, if he's a good liar. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Who was it that said that? Someone had written that. I know others have, but... Who was it? Jesus. Lewis? I agree. The only thing is that their betrayal of Jesus is not a simple rejection of a person, but of the very one through whom is known forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life with the Father. The other disciples feared that they had somehow betrayed their Lord. But Judas knew that he already had betrayed the Lord and refused to repent of such a thing. There, there's a difference, right? There's, there's a difference in how you approach the Lord, how you fear Him. The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Is what it says in Proverbs. And it's so true. Have you ever been in that place to where it's like, I, I don't know, you know, have I, have I sinned against you, Lord? Reveal to me. Is it I who has betrayed you, who has turned my back on you in some way, shape, or form? How is it? Please reveal that, that I may turn from that, that, that I may confess, confess that and, and, and just come in alignment with your will. Help me. Help me to understand this, Lord. Because it wasn't that way for Judas. We have the contrast between the two. We have Mary, the extravagant lover of Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, we have Judas Iscariot, who was this despicable betrayer of the Lord, and he had no remorse. There's nothing there at the, at the moment. Nothing at all. This picture of extravagant love demonstrated toward Jesus by Mary was deemed beautiful by Jesus. On the other hand, we have a picture of a despicable betrayal on the part of Judas that was deemed wicked by Jesus, warning of the fact that it was condemning and would lead to eternal suffering. Extravagant love, despicable betrayal, and a humble fear. We have all those before us. We have this home that welcomes Jesus by Simon, one who had been healed, and just simply allowed what the Lord desired to do in his home. We have all these things within these verses that we just went over. How it ministered to you, I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. I simply ask and pray and hope that you have allowed the Lord to minister to you in some way, shape, or form. That as the Lord has spoken to you, that you have a proper response. That is, Lord, how are you speaking to me? How is it that I can apply these truths to bless and glorify you, to come more in line with your will in my life, that I may bless you 
and not like Judas Iscariot who simply remained in his pride and coldly responded in the way he did to Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father to fulfill a work that you and I could never accomplish to know salvation and forgiveness of sins. Jesus died on the cross is by the Father's will, not the people's. He died on the cross and shed his blood on behalf of you and me. He died, was buried, three days later rose from the grave. He is alive today and on the right and sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and I. What's our response? Is it extravagant love or is it continued betrayal? I pray it's the former. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your extravagant love, the display that you Lord, have made known to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I, I pray that we would, would respond. Lord, withholding nothing, giving you everything, our very lives. Everything that we have is yours. So I do ask, Father, that you would reveal in our lives anything that is not of you, anything that we need to turn from, confess to you, Hand over to you, Lord, and just ask for your help in walking according to the Spirit. Walk in a proper response to the love that you've demonstrated to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so be with us. Fill us with your Spirit. I pray if there's anyone here who does not know salvation in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. We know it's a simple response in belief that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again. Lord, but it is to be a genuine response and a confession, Father. And I pray that, again, today would be that day in which they know they know forgiveness of sins. For all of us, Father, I pray that you would help us walk with you, abide in you, bless you, glorify you, Father. Thank you for that love that you first demonstrated to us. Through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.